Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 343 Podcast, where we work tirelessly to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer. Today, I've got Taylor Davila on the line once again. It's his second time on the show. He's a pro soccer player, 22 years of age, plays for RGV over in Texas, and formerly of the LA Galaxy 2. And the topic that he's chosen today is regarding an identity for the U.S. men's national team. Do we have one? Do we not have one? If we do have one, what is it exactly? If we don't have one, why not? And what should it be? And yes, the topic of Jesse Marsh also comes up. So, it's another great chat that offers insights and a perspective that really isn't out there in the wild. I'll just say a couple things before I jump into the show. And that is centered around this word, identity. This word, identity, really didn't surface in the American soccer vocabulary until not too long ago. And if I'm being frank, maybe it was around the time that Spain won the World Cup, FC Barcelona was thrashing everybody in Europe, uh, Brian, of course, was proving that the youth here in the States can actually have an identity as well and play remarkable football. Caleb Porter was doing his thing in Akron. I mean, there really was a confluence of things that came together with just a few of us actually using the word and talking about the notion that is an identity. And then, yes, all of a sudden, the word got adopted here in the States. But sadly, unfortunately, however you want to put it, well, it's the way I put it, it's used in such a cavalier way nowadays that it's practically lost all its meaning. Because you know what? Everyone claims the team they operate, the team they support, the team they cover also has an identity, which is total nonsense. Guys, I'm being sincere. 99.9% .9 of American soccer clubs and teams, from youth to pro to the national teams, do not have an identity. Certainly not in the way the rest of the world understands the word to mean. With that, let's discuss the U.S. men's national team. But first, if you're a coach or a parent of a player, you don't want to miss the following brand new ad about a product that can definitely help you out. Here we go. We've got something a bit special for your ads today, so you probably don't want to skip this one if you think we're a good source for education. If you're a coach specifically working with the little ones in the 7v7 format, we've launched a brand new course just for you, naturally called the 7v7 course. And as you probably know, every age group needs a bit of a different touch. And I should be a little bit careful here because it's not every single age group that is different. We can bucket more broadly than that. And the fundamental principles of play, well, those don't change. But in 7v7, we're dealing with the little ones. So it makes sense to give coaches a well-refined, proven-to-be-successful methodology they can use. That way, they're not flying blind and trying to figure things out all on their own. The good news, of course, is that if you're an existing 343 member, you're definitely not flying blind. But now you can add this course as well, which leverages the fundamental principles showcased in your membership. And if you're still not a member, no problem. You can hop on board and start your membership with the 7v7 curriculum. Simply go to 7v7coaching.com. That's 7v7coaching.com. How about if you're not a 7v7 coach, though, and still not a 343 member? No problem as well. You can learn the U10 to U19 methodology. 
that we used firsthand to train players from the age of nine all the way until they became professionally contracted players in top clubs in Spain, Germany, Holland, Portugal, Belgium. Guys, the list goes on and on. And yes, in MLS and USL here in the States as well. And please, please keep in mind that you will be learning from the actual source and practitioners, most notably Brian Clyburn, who pioneered a seismic shift here in American soccer development. You get to watch him in action in the real live training environment. This is not some scripted or manufactured presentation lifted from reading books or other people's work. Absolutely not, guys. You get to learn straight from a legit practitioner in the unique American soccer environment himself, who has an unprecedented track record and extensive video evidence of his actual team's performing. Simply go to 343coaching.com. And parents, we don't forget about you. You are absolutely critical to the development of your son or daughter. We're opening the 343 Master Class program again to another small cohort. Since this is a very special program, we're only allowing the first 20 parents who email me to register. You can find my email address and instructions at 343masterclass.com. All right, ads are done. Products are set. You are now equipped. Let's get into the show. Here we go. All right, T, well, take us away. I just want to start by saying I've been a huge fan of U.S. soccer growing up. My family and I would watch the men's national team, whether it was the World Cup, whether they were playing friendlies, we would always watch. And I've always been a big fan of them. And then that's probably the reason why I am so critical of them as well. I think we can and should be much better than we are. And every game I watch, I'm critical of all the players. I'm critical of the tactics and the coaching. And I look at everything. I look at everything that I feel we could be doing better as a country. I already have a question right out the gate. So it sounds like you equate fandom with criticism at a point. Can you expand a little bit on that? Because some people maybe have the wrong impression or the wrong idea that, well, if you're a fan, you should just always stand behind the team and cheer them on no matter what. And I totally don't subscribe to that because, you know, I obviously I come from Argentina and we're hypercritical. I mean, we were even telling Messi, you suck, you're trash garbage you don't care about the national team you only care about barcelona get the fuck out of here like imagine okay we're telling these things to the goat and we're criticizing the coach and the federation like crazy that they're a bunch of corrupt punks bastards bureaucrats politicians in the federation we go at them hard and the journalists go at them hard over there so that's kind of like my culture my soccer culture and i know it that's pretty much in line with most of the rest of the world but here in the u.s it seems to not be the case right here in the u.s it's hey get your pom-poms out guys Woo! let's cheer the team no matter what oh you lost it's okay guys the future is still bright you'll get them next time let's look at what you did good in the game right so maybe you can dive a little bit deeper as to how you have more of that outside of america sort of fandom i mean i grew up with coaches and they were always saying to their players if i want you to get better Am I going to treat you like a little teddy bear? Oh, it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about this. No, we're going to be hard on you. We're going to tell you what you did wrong. And this is how you're going to get better. And I think it should be the same way for fans. Did the U.S. national team win the last World Cup? No. Then we can be better. 
and saying, oh, the next one's at home. The next one's in the U.S. You guys are going to be a little bit older. You'll get the next one. No worries. No worries. I don't believe in that at all. I think as fans, we should voice our opinions on what U.S. soccer can be doing better on the players, how they can be playing better and how they can improve themselves. And this approach of the teddy bear, oh, don't worry, it's going to be okay, is not going to help anyone get better. I love it, T. I love it. All right, dude, you've started out with a bang with this one already. I'm loving the conversation. Keep going. Yeah, so the last World Cup under Greg Borhalter, we did okay. We made it out of the group and then we lost to the Netherlands. Just the tactics and the identity of the team in my opinion, we're not clear. We try to build out of the back sometimes, but we don't really have the players to build out of the back. And then we try to kick it long, which is the next solution when building out of the back doesn't work. And who are we kicking it long to? We have these big nines like Sergeant Haji Wright. Are they good in hold-up play? Can they receive a long ball and lay it off to a midfielder? And what are the main ways we tried to attack and tried to score goals was through crosses. And for a couple of years now, for a long time, there's been a debate with fans of U.S. soccer on who should be our number nine, who should be our guy in the box, who's scoring our goals. But before we even get to the nine, do we have anyone on our team who is known to be a great crosser? Do we have anyone on our team who can sit outside the box and whip in a ball right to the head of our number nine? No, not really. And then you get to the number nine, and arguably our best finisher of crosses is Ricardo Pepe, and he was left at home. The majority of our attacks came from crosses, and in my opinion, we just don't have the players to, to do that, to be effective in that manner. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring the crossing side of the equation into it because there was a lot of outside back runs forward when you got the chance, so it was Serginho Des, and on the other side, it was... Anthony Robinson. Serginho, okay, he can put a decent cross in there. But from, from the other side of the equation, Anthony Robinson, I'm not kidding you. I know I have a long track record of not liking him for this level for the men's national team. He's a great professional. He plays in the Premier League. All those things are fucking awesome. I wish him nothing but the best. But the guy, when he crosses the ball, it's a blind AYSO cross. Taylor, literally, he gets to the end line or somewhere thereabouts. And it's not like he's has his head up. He's like, oh, there is my guy in between two center backs. I'm going to try to curl it in right in between the two center backs to hit the guy's head. Or, hey, look, Sergino or somebody else is flying on the back post. I'm going to go back post over everybody. Oh, look, somebody's making a run to the first post. I'm going to go on the ground, try to hit that guy making the run to the first post. He's not looking up and saying, those are my options and does the calculations in his mind and then executing technically. No, it's literally oh, I just kind of got past my guy right now with speed. I'm not even going to look up. I'm blindly just going to hit it into the box and hopefully somebody's there. That's not a cross, T. That is not a cross. No. It's crazy, all. man. It's crazy. And it's crazy that we have a fan base that I think to their credit, they're getting better and better as the years have gone by because naturally you kind of get better the more you watch over the years. And we still have a, a relatively new fan base that's just been introduced to, to the game. I'm not talking about the vast majority of soccer fans here in the country, which are immigrants, right? Or kids of immigrants. 
that number us in the millions, the Latinos in particular. And we know all about that being from Southern California, right? And you're in Texas now, so we know all about that. There's a huge soccer first demographic that really gets it here in this country. No, I'm talking about people who have just barely come on board, right? Maybe other kids in soccer, the suburban cultures, they kind of name that demo. And they're getting to learn the fandom and they go to MLS games or they watch some MLS. That's the crew that has a long way to go. And they just don't see this from Anthony. All they see is the resume. They're like, oh, Gary, what are you talking about? Look how fast he is. Gary, what are you talking about? He plays in the Premier League. He must be top, top, top of the heap of our player pool. And it's just not that simple, right? See, and you know this as a player. It doesn't necessarily correlate that, oh, you play on this league or on this team. That must mean you're above this other guy who plays in this other league on this other club, right? That's just not true. And this ties into what you want to talk about today, which is specifically about identity, right? So when you make player selections and when you choose how it is that you want to play, all of this is tied together. Maybe I'll let you riff on that a little bit, Tease. Does the U.S. men's national team, from your perspective, from having started watching them when you were a kid until now, and obviously your evolution has changed over the years too, because before you were a pro, maybe you looked at it differently. And before you were a 17-year-old, you were probably looked at it differently. And now as a mature young man who has several years of professional soccer under his belt, you see it another way. So I'm just curious, does the U.S. men's national team, in your opinion, have an identity? If it does, what is it? If it doesn't, I don't know, what would you like to see, T? I think Growing up, I don't quite remember how the U.S. used to play. It was maybe just kind of kick it long, compete for the second balls, just kind of run and gun kind of thing. And the last couple of years under Burr I feel he's tried to play. He's tried to build out of the back a little bit. For me, there's never been a clear idea of how we're going to get goals. The only identity I've seen with the U.S. national team under recent years is the pressing. He has selected... His midfielders, I believe, Adams, McKinney, Musa, all very athletic, all very hardworking, pressing machines, especially McKinney and Adams. And this was our main identity, I feel, in the World Cup. I think against England, they had a tough time handling it. It got us through into the knockout rounds, and we tried again versus the Netherlands to press. Pressing is hard work. Pressing is sprinting, changing direction, sprinting another way. It's duels, it's 1v1 duels, it's very, very hard work. And international competition like the World Cup, where you play seven games in a month or a little bit less or over a month, that's difficult. Difficult to keep up that level of energy and that level of fitness through 90 minutes, seven times. So I would like to see maybe a little bit defensively, just a little bit sitting back a little bit, I feel, in the international game. Most of the teams sit back wait for the team to come on to them and then set their defense up from there and then offensively we need to develop certain types of players to score goals in a specific way and we haven't figured out what that way is yet and once we figure out what that way is then we need to start developing players in that manner i'll get a little bit more into that later when we talk about identity on how to create an identity yeah that's a pretty good analysis, if I'm being sincere, T, like if there is something that we can t say was the identity of Burr team, particularly in the World Cup, it was that pressing. It was that pressing in the midfield. 
And this is something that Brian has harped on in his YouTube videos. I don't know if you've watched any of them leading up to the World Cup and in the World Cup, is that the midfield trio, the player profile that has always been selected there is these big, fast, strong, for lack of a better thing, because everybody relates to those three words. The machines, as you put it, in the midfield, which will press you like crazy, which are very good in the air, which are good in the 1v1 duels, which are good in those maybe initial three or five meter change of directions or sprints to maybe get past one guy if need be, or recover to that one guy if need be. Scrappers, basically. But there are no creators. And I think when you mentioned, hey, that's all well and good if that wants to be your identity. Fine. That's the U.S. identity. And it seems like that has been the identity forever also. is like winning second balls, bone crunching tackles, work hard, work hard, work hard. And a lot of legendary international coaches have always kind of known that that's not enough to work hard because they always have these quotes like, anybody can run. Anybody can run. Okay. But can you play football? And that's not to say Tyler Adams can't play football or McKinney can't play football or Musa can't play football or Brendan Aronson can't play football. Obviously, they can play football. But what they're suggesting is that there's levels of being able to play football, right? So Kamavinga is a certain level of footballer in the midfield. Tony Cruz is a certain level of footballer in the midfield. Modric is a certain level of footballer. He is not going to win the headers. He works his ass off. He runs. Don't get me wrong, okay? But on the technical side, on the brain side of understanding the game in the fifth dimension, right? When these other guys are stuck in three dimensions is off the charts. So that's playing football. Everybody else can run. That's the type of player we need to start elevating in our country, I believe, T. And it's a little annoying. I'm not going to suggest otherwise when people say, well, Gary, that's our player pool. Where are these Modriches or whatever? Guys, you're asking the wrong question, okay? One is, you don't know who the Modric's are because they're never elevated at the pro level or at the national team level. So we can't even have the discussion. I can rattle off names, but you'll be like, what are you talking about, Gary? He's not even in the Premier League. Or, you know what I'm saying? They'll resort back to the pedigree. You understand? Yeah. Well, buddy, listen, if we had elevated player X, Y, or Z to the senior men's national team stage and had him cap 5, 10, 12, 15, 20 times, well, guess what? He would be in the Premier League now because everybody would know about him in the world and all the magnifying glasses would be there. And he would actually be in the Premier League at this point. He could potentially be a Bernardo Silva. He could potentially be all these sort of crafty central midfielders that don't have the player profile of a Musa, McKinney, Adams, Aronson, etc. And even before then, Taylor, how about elevating these types of players before even the professional level? right? You elevate them, elevate them, you nurture them, you nurture them. And then when you make them a pro in MLS as a homegrown player or whatever, you play them and they are the guys, right? You nurture, nurture, nurture versus nah, he doesn't run as fast. Nah, he can't win aerial duels. Nah, that technical crafty stuff doesn't work here in this league. Then all of a sudden, all these players erode over time. And of course you don't see them on the national team stage either. So we have all these issues that we need to address. And ultimately, Taylor, it comes down to your topic of the day, which is identity. If you want to play a certain way, if you have a national team, if you have U.S. soccer, the people in charge, right? The people with decision-making power and authority, the 
national team manager, if they want to play this way, then you have to elevate that player profile and you have to select that player profile and you go from there. That's a great point. That's a great point. Even just in MLS, you look at every MLS team where they should be developing Americans, they should be developing young American players in their youth academies. On all the first teams, the majority of the first teams in MLS, you look at their teams, who is the number 10? A foreigner, South American, Argentine, or Uruguayan, or Brazilian, whatever, they just import them. Yeah, as a 25, 26-year-old, 27-year-old, 23-year-old, somebody already kind of seasoned who has all of those technical qualities. So the homegrown player, I think, is your point, right? Get screwed at that point. Exactly. They bring in these South American players who, who, they're good, but we can be developing American players in those positions. American players in those positions are not given a chance. I think... Maybe Cole Bassett, maybe Jack McGlynn are kind of the first players, attacking midfield players who are being given chances in the MLS right now. There may be more, I'm not sure. But just in the MLS, all of these number 10s, all of these playmakers are South American or European, like Ricky Puig. We're not giving American players a chance. Yeah, I know um, that. I'm sorry to interrupt you because it's important. I'll forget otherwise. You mentioned Jack McGlynn, and it's curious because it ties into what I mentioned literally minutes ago. Jack McGlynn was given the platform of the U-20 youth national team, and he was showing good things during that U-20 cycle, which is culminating now in the World Cup in a little while. And listen, I want to be cautious. You know, I respect what Philadelphia Union has been doing, no question. But Jack McGlynn had not been getting first team minutes. Zero, no minutes, nothing, scrap, maybe be on the bench, maybe come in as a 90th minute substitute to waste time or maybe the minutes were scarce to none t and then because of the platform that the u20 youth national team afforded and jack mcglynn you know went into the media hype cycle at that point because he was exhibiting a lot of good qualities all of a sudden he started getting more and more opportunities with philadelphia union's first team and all of a sudden he was i mean he proved he can play and he proved he can do a lot of great things so it goes to show you that these platforms drive or give the decision makers the incentive to actually afford chances to people. Because in, in many cases, they're playing politics, Taylor. It's like before the U-20 national team, oh, I don't know, should we give this kid Jack a chance or not? What if we give him a chance and he's just not good and we lose and we lose another game and we lose another game and people start wondering, well, duh, you're playing an 18-year-old kid in that position you guys are dumbasses. you should be fired they don't want that heat on them so they go with the safe 23 27 30 year old experienced guy there that doesn't have any skill but they can sell that and then jack gets the opportunity with the u20s now they have the political capital or the political way of saying hey everybody loves this kid the media loves this kid let's throw him on the field if he does great we're geniuses if he does terrible well guys all of you were wrong in your perception too. It's not us. You get what I'm getting at, right? There's all these other variables circulating, unfortunately, in the minds of a lot of these decision makers, which is unfortunate because are you that insecure that you can't rely on your own eyes and your own judgment and your own way of wanting to play and your own way of wanting to win and your own way of wanting to compete that you say, hey, you know what, this kid we have in the academy? I think he's actually better than our 27-year-old that we have here who's been a, an MLS veteran 
for seven years or something. Come here, kid. I'm going to throw you in. Let's go. Let's go against Colorado Rapids next weekend. Let's see what you can do. Very few people have the sack, right, to be able to do that. It's crazy. And the social media has such a big influence on it. When I was at the Galaxy, there was a younger player who went viral for doing skill moves against Sunday League players his own age. And he's a good player for his age, don't get me wrong. All of a sudden, he's signed by this team in England, and then the Galaxy signs him. And it's all because of these little viral videos on Instagram. It's crazy. And then going back to coaches being insecure and being scared almost to play the younger players. Going back to your favorite topic, promotion relegation. There's no punishment for losing. Why not play these players? Why not? Why not? Well, I mean, they have been doing it ever since the 2018-2019 exodus of young players to Europe who said, no, thank you, MLS, we're bouncing. All of a sudden, again, it gave them the political excuse or the political capital. Hey, let's play all the young kids so this doesn't happen to us anymore. We look really bad in the media at the moment that all these players are leaving us. Let's play all the kids, right? And that was the reason they played all the kids, T. And yes, Mm -hmm. so they are primarily principally driven, not from the sporting side, Taylor. They're principally driven by public perception and internal perceptions. Those are the incentives and it's unfortunate, but again, it's because there's no promotion relegation. If there was promotion relegation, they wouldn't give a rat's ass about public perception or hype cycles or media or nothing. Nothing like that would matter with promotion relegation. It's like, who do we believe can get the job done? Let's hire that guy as the coach. Let's hire that as the technical staff. Let's hire that as our GM, as our president, as our technical director. And what players are going to, we believe, give us the maximum possibility of winning here and just execute. So when you bring in new blood, new coaches, new everything that are experienced and can identify talent and know what level they can actually play at or not play at, they themselves will be like, you know what, this 19-year-old right here, he's better than the guy that you've been playing who is 30 years of age, who played at Colorado and then Seattle and then New York Red Bulls and now he's here. No, this 19-year-old that you guys just signed six months ago, I'm playing him. That guy knows football. He sees the game. He can execute what I want him to execute. So it's all linked together, T, with the promotion relegation thing. But let's try to refocus ourselves back on identity. It is tied to identity, too. It really, it truly is. It is, 100%. And if we want to have an identity, we need to start developing these players to be able to look a certain way and play a certain way. And going back to you had mentioned earlier, the coaches in Europe for their national teams, the sporting directors for their national teams. Coaches, unless they have a major amount of success, at the international level, most coaches don't last more than a World Cup cycle. Jurgen Klinsmann lasted one World Cup cycle. Greg Berhalter, likely the same. And we just hired a new sporting director, I want to say, for U.S. soccer. I don't know exactly the position, but... With this constant change of coaching and whoever's running U.S. soccer, how do we form an identity with this constant kind of change? Yeah, Um, yeah. And in Spain, they didn't start playing tiki-taka or total football until Johan Cruyff went to Barcelona and implemented it into the academies there and into the first team. And the people in Spain 
and fell in love with this way of playing. And from then on, most of their academies developed their players to be able to play this way. Most of the teams in Spain are possession-based, playing simple one-touch football. And the whole country fell in love with this style of play. And so with that, thinking about that and thinking about the constant change of coaching, coaching the national team, in your opinion, Gary, how do you think the best way to form an identity is? Okay, great question. So we can look at the macro and the micro, and there's this ever-present debate in all domains, not just soccer, about top-down and bottom-up, right? Is it something that's directed from the top, or is it more of an organic sort of groundswell from the grassroots and the lower level of the pyramid that kind of influences everything at the top? And I think both things are important. A couple things came to mind, T. One is, you remember... Brian's famous team that went viral on YouTube, the U11s that had Alex Mendez, uh, Uli, that whole crew. So I think, I'm convinced of this, around 2010, no, 2012, 2013, 2014, around that time frame, Brian proved at the youth level that you can have an identity already. And it just so happened that Brian really loved Barcelona and the Tiki Taka and the total football and all that stuff. He also loved Marcelo Bielsa very much with the intense, high-pressing, counter-attacking zeal. And he incorporated that. And he was able to distribute that, in a sense, to the country, right? The country became well aware of it. So that's at the youth level. Then at the college level, almost around the same time, maybe a year or two after that video went viral, you had Caleb Porter at Akron really showcasing that you can execute that same or similar style of football at the college level when everybody would always say, no, Gary, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't do it at the youth level. You need these outrageously technical players. And we proved them wrong. Oh, no, Gary, you can't do that in college because in college, you've got all these substitution rules and it's all about counterattacking like crazy, punching one way, punching the other way. Everything's very physical. It's a physical league. You can't do that here. Nonsense. Caleb Porter proved them wrong. And then the last little ingredient was at the MLS level. And Data Martino proved it at the MLS level. Caleb Porter started to at Portland when he first got there. And then he kind of abandoned ship. And he, in my opinion, with all due respect, he kind of became like every other American coach here. I don't know what happened. I don't know why he abandoned his principles. I tend to believe that there are other forces. Well, I don't tend to believe. I know that there are other forces at the pro level that are outside of a coach's control, especially new coaches control, because he doesn't control the roster. He can't say, hey, get this guy, this guy, this guy out of here and bring me this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy that match what he wants to do. It's not that simple. And sometimes the front office is dictating to the coach. These are your players. These are the ones that we're getting rid of. You basically have little say in the matter. And then that kind of ruins your identity. But Caleb started doing it at the MLS level. But Tata Martino came in with Atlanta United for two years and demonstrated that you can actually play this sort of football as well in MLS. When everybody was saying, Gary, you don't know what you're talking about. It's a physical league. We don't have the players to be able to play that way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have the three components. You have youth showcasing identity and that style of football. College, it was proven. MLS, it was proven. And then enters Burhalter, right? Because the last piece of the puzzle was the national team. And so Burhalter, for sure, all of this had been swirling for six, seven years, right? Building out of the back, 
right? Interchanging positions, having the outside backs pinch into the midfield in possession, a little innovation that Pep Guardiola had been doing at Man City. So all of this stuff had been swirling and the media was always talking about building out of the back, building out of the back. But now, right? Because Barcelona had crushed the Champions League, crushed La Liga during this era as well. And Spain had won the World Cup, showcasing all this stuff at the international level as well. So it was a confluence of five, six, seven, eight years of possession, 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 total football, control of the game. So Burhalter, of course, I'm sure was influenced by all of these things. He's like, oh, I guess I'm going to try to build out of the back, actually implement an identity. And I think that's why you saw inklings of it, T, right? You saw, okay, the ball's being circulated by the back four. Okay, oh, here comes Tyler Adams checking in as the six or dropping in between the center backs, trying to build out. But as all of us practitioners who actually execute it on the training grounds know that the hardest piece of the puzzle, the last piece of the puzzle is the final third. You can entertain possession all you want. Great. But once you get in the final third, can you execute? Now what? Now what do you do? And here's where the magical players are important. The number 10 that you're referring to. You can't have these three machines, these three bone crunchers, right? In central midfielder, because that's not their skill set. They don't know how to unlock that final pass. They don't know how to deceive the eight opponents that are behind the ball, right? Forming the Great Wall of China there. That's what came to mind, right? They don't see the game on that dimension, so they can't execute it. And same with our attackers. If you're talking about a nine, do we have a nine that sees the game so well that he knows what run to make at what time when a particular player has the ball? And do we have players who can actually deliver that final ball to, say, our nine, if we're going to have that sort of style? Do you have wingers who have the technical quality to feed the nine? Do you have the outside backs or the wing backs with the technical quality to finish the plays off in the final third? So this comes back to player profiling, Taylor. So anyways, you asked me, hey, how do we develop an identity? So that was an example of a ground up, right? Instead of a top down, because it was a groundswell of youth soccer, right? And from my perspective, Brian proving it at the youth level, Caleb at the college level, Tata Martino at the MLS level. So that was from the ground up, forcing kind of the senior men's national team coach to be like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And then there's the other possibility, which is the top down. And one of the best examples is probably Marcelo Bielsa's work with Chile, because Chile had been a whatever sort of team in South America. I should be a little bit careful because when they had a good generation of players before Marcelo Bielsa and they did some damage and they did well. But when Marcelo Bielsa got to Chile, Chile was like whatever. And he made them into the toast of international football. He forced an identity upon them, his identity, which is incredibly high pressing all the time, incredibly lightning fast counterattacks all the time, not backing down to any opponent. So never would you see a Marcelo Biosa team in a low block, defending, defending in a shell, right? Waiting, waiting because, oh shit, because I have Argentina in front of me or I have Brazil in front of me or I have France in front of me and I'm going to defend myself and look to counter strike. That was not his identity. He's like, fuck you, Argentina. Fuck you, France. I'm coming at you. I don't give a shit, right? So that was his identity. He executed it very well. The Chileans loved him. And from that generation of players, because he elevated them, was Vidal, Gary Medel, the center Gary back. Medel, Sanchez. So yeah, he graduated this incredible crop of 
Alexis, International Chilean Alexis football. Sanchez. Alexis, Alexis Sanchez. And so Chile was on the map and they did very, very well. And that was a true identity and the country celebrated it. So that's an example of top down. So what does the U.S. need? I believe that the U.S. needs, at this point, a top-down sort of situation. We need to get a manager. We need to get decision makers in there who know at a very high level exactly what it is that they're doing and how to do it, and they do it. So you bring in a world-class coach. Marcelo Villas is already gone. He's gone to Uruguay, snatching him up. But he was free. I'm wondering, did we pursue Marcelo or not? Get Marcelo in here. You would have a men's national team that you would be proud of, Taylor, and I would be extremely proud of as well. Now I don't know. I don't know what we're going to get, dude. We're probably going to get some, in my opinion, somebody that's really safe. They're going to play politics, Taylor. It's like, who is the politically safe person to hire here that's not going to give us headaches, that's going to say all the right things in public, that's just going to kind of drive this boat, drive this car the way it's always been driven. And it's going to suck. It's going to suck so bad. It doesn't mean that we won't do good, say, in the World Cup. Hey, we might do very good at home. Anything can happen. Okay, Korea got to the semifinal when it was over there in Korea. So can we get to a semifinal or a final even? It's not impossible, Taylor, even with the types of players that I believe are not great. It's totally possible, but it's not something I'll be proud of. I'll put it like that. Gotcha. So you're saying... It should start with the coaches. It should start with someone who's going to pick the team, who has an identity in mind, and is going to pick their team to fit that identity. But it, No, but it starts on who has the power to hire the coaches. That mm -hmm. is where the buck stops. That is where the buck stops. So that is the person or persons who are responsible for everything that you see here. When there is a great coach that can do those things that you say, awesome, okay? But it's the person who brought them on board that shares a good degree of responsibility. And if the person who brings a, some mediocre guy on board, well, hey, who brought them on board? You are the problem. This is one of the battles, this is one of the things that annoys me so much around here is that those people who are doing the hiring and firing, they're just behind the scenes, in the shadows, and for lack of a better term, I'm trying to find a term that's more charitable, but I feel like they're very cowardly because they don't step out in front and say, hey, I'm here, it's my fault. So the U.S. soccer just hired Matt Crocker, who is the Southampton director of football over in the Premier League. They might get relegated, but... So he has experience in Europe. He has experience at a high level in the Premier League. Southampton is known for developing players and selling players and bringing players from their youth academies up into the first team. This is the person right now who will be making decisions in the future for U.S. soccer. But somebody brought that person on. Yeah, and there's <laughs> there's a whole bunch of people in U.S. soccer. I don't know their names, but they brought him on. And will he get freedom? I don't know if that's the right word to pick right. who he wants to be the coach or will there be outside influences? Right, right. These are all great questions. These are the questions. See, this is the job of a journalist. Taylor, these questions that we're generating, these things that we're discussing, that should be a journalist's job. That They should be going out there and asking all these questions and writing articles about it. They should be asking, hey, Crocker, who hired you? Who hired you? Right? And then ask that person a whole bunch of probing questions. 
Why did you hire Mr. Crocker? Who were the other candidates? Why Mr. Crocker, not the other candidates, etc. Dig, 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 dig. But no, they don't. So that when things go south, there's always these scapegoats, right? You can always blame the coach. Ah, it's the coach's fault, wasn't good enough. And obviously the fan base falls in line because they only read articles from these reporters who all the magnifying glasses on the coach. Oh, it's the coach's fault. So they fire the coach and the people who hire the coach never get in trouble or they'll fire Crocker. Oh, see, well, Crocker hired him. So Crocker hired him. So it's Crocker's fault. Well, who hired him? Anyways, we're getting a little off track, but it is still is related to identity. And ultimately identity is a sporting thing. So are we making legitimate sporting decisions in our hiring of personnel? Or are there other factors that are too influential that are not sporting? So all of this is linked to identity. Yeah, interesting you say identity is a sporting thing because the next topic I was going to bring up was identity doesn't necessarily have to be a sporting thing. Yeah, correct. Identity can be a characteristic authentic to the region. For example, you think of Germans, you think of hard work, dedication, you think of Iceland, who had a great run in the Euro 2016. You think of togetherness. You think of being stronger as a whole. You think of that Viking clap that like every fan base does now. You think of those specific teams. They brought their characteristics as a country, as people in general, to their national teams. You saw Iceland in Euro 2016. They worked hard. They worked as a team. You barely knew any of the players they had, maybe one, Sigurdsson, I think. But they worked as a team and they were stronger as a team. And then you think about Germany, their hard work and dedication, where the term G-Gen pressing has come out of Germany in the last decade or so, which is the idea of winning the ball up high and then going straight to goal, going straight down your throat. So this tactic has come out of Germany in the last decade or so. And this, I believe, has come from the German identity of being hardworking, being durable, like a Kimmich, like a Goretzka, guys who are going to press, guys who are going to win duels up high, and then can go straight down your throat. And so these two countries have used their identity as people, have brought this identity out through their national teams. And if the U.S. does something similar, many people think of the U.S., they think of the American dream. They think of with hard work, you can achieve anything. And the U.S. has exemplified that a little bit with their pressing with the Tyler Adams, with the Weston McKinney, just pressing in midfield. But I believe also with the American dream comes creativity, comes ideas, new ideas for entrepreneurship, this bringing out of new ideas, trying new things, trial and error. And I think if the U.S. national team taps into that aspect a little bit more, of the American dream, of the American identity, we can bring out who we're meant to be, maybe. Who, as a country, this is part of the American dream. This is part of our identity, being creative and bringing out new ideas. We already have the hard work on the soccer field. Now can we bring in the creativity and ideas to the field as well? No, awesome, awesome observation, T. All the things that came to my mind. Yes, it's a lot of the off-the-field stuff that influences the on-the-field sporting stuff. So when we talk about identity of a team, of a program, we're definitely talking about sporting, okay? But it's all the off-the-field things also that contribute. Culture is basically the word that you're describing. And in that respect, then, 
in many ways, I would conclude that the U.S. does have a soccer identity, and it has had a soccer identity, a soccer culture for generations, for decades, and that you nailed it. It is the hardworking ethic, okay? Everybody here works hard, historically at least. I don't know about nowadays, okay? But historically, the culture is put your head down, get your nine-to-five job, work, 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 work. If you do good work, you get a promotion. Again, work, 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 work. Very robotic in a sense. Very worker bee-ish in a sense. And there's a reason they call them worker bees. There's a reason that they call bees drones. Yes, is because you are given one assignment and that is it. No extracurriculars. Just execute that one assignment to the best of your ability. So in many respects, the, the populace here in the U.S. are drones. And we wake up shower, brush our teeth, put our pants on, go to work for eight, nine hours, come home, repeat over and over and over again and do it hard. And that's the national team. And that's our soccer culture at the youth, college, pro and national team levels for as long as I can remember. So we do have that identity incorporated in there. It's just not good enough because soccer involves more than that. It involves the creativity the ideas, the improvisation, the bending of rules, the breaking of rules. Remember, drones don't bend or break rules. They frown upon bending and breaking of rules. So you don't see our players or coaches bending the rules or breaking the rules or looking for an advantage or trying to deceive the referee or trying to have the ball boy not give the ball to the opponent when we have to waste time or actually have the ball boy throw the ball further away from the opponent, right? Those are all things that are frowned upon in our worker bee drone obey the rule culture. And that's been reflected in our national team if we want to stick to the, just the national team for the moment. So we do have an identity. You mentioned creativity and new ideas and entrepreneurship. That's also kind of part of the American ethos. We actually do have that, Taylor, but it's not reflected in the way that I think you're trying or you'd like to see reflected. I'll be specific. New ideas entrepreneur, entrepreneurial. Great. We have all these ideas of how to train players. We have all these ideas of certain drills. We have all these ideas about league formats. We have all these ideas about no promotion relegation. Do it like the NFL. Do it like basketball or baseball or hockey or whatever. We have all these ideas that are, quote unquote, new when you compare it to the rest of the world, the rest of the footballing world. So we actually have that incorporated in our culture, in our soccer identity. Also, it's just a mistake, okay? In the sense that, hey, you see what the great soccer powers are doing elsewhere. How about we learn from them? How about we understand what it is that they do? How about we incorporate what it is that they do best? And once you understand that and have the fundamentals, then you can innovate and improvise on top of it or make it your own or put your own spin on it. But we do the opposite. We're like, ah, fuck the rest of the world. We're Americans. We're going to start from scratch. We know we're doing better than everybody else. We'll show you, right? So that actually exists here. We don't want outsider influence or anything of the sort, which is, again, probably why we're going to hire another coach that has that type of culture for our national team and why we did not pursue Marcelo Biesa or Lopetegui or any of these quote-unquote foreigners to come in here because, nah, we're American. We do it our way. 
and you don't understand our way. So we're not going to have you around here. Mm-hmm. Anyways, all of this to say, T, that yes, off the field stuff, absolutely. The culture influences the identity. And I think with this framing, the U.S. men's national team does have an identity. And for the most part, it has always had an identity that is reflective of our culture. It's just not good enough. We needed to change. I have been advocating for what types of change. They don't want it because they see it as a foreign thing. And that's interesting. I've been seeing a lot of on Instagram, oh, Jesse Marsh should be the new national team coach, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting, kind of a double-sided coin because he is American and he played soccer in the U.S. But Jesse Marsh has been in Europe, been learning ideas and how certain European countries play football. Like he's been in Germany. He has amplified the idea of G-Gen pressing. He tried to do it with his Leeds United team. So he has the ideas of German football. He has been over there learning and hopefully taking what's best from how they play football. And so hiring him would be very interesting because he is American, but most likely his ideas are coming from Europe. Well, it is interesting. I think the hiring of Jesse Marsh, in my opinion, again, and it's okay for everybody to disagree, you included, obviously, is I think it's more of the same, Taylor, because your biggest influences are as you grow up. Yes. He went to Europe, sure, but he went to Europe already as an established grown ass man, right? With all the ideas that come with that, with being the pupil, the apprentice, whatever synonym you want to use of the Bruce Arenas, the Bob Bradleys, that whole entourage, that whole previous generation of coaching and culture. He is the descendant of them. And yes, he went to Europe. Sure, he learned a shit ton that his colleagues who stay here in the States have not learned quite yet. And I'll add, it's interesting that, okay, so Austria, right? Germany, you mentioned, because Austria is not a world power, but you got Germany and you got England. What's interesting is that Those two countries, especially England, but to a great extent, Germany, are very much in line with American culture in many ways, okay? Especially England, English speaking, they are the motherland, right? The structures that exist there, the culture that exists there is very much in line with America and Germany to a great extent as well. Great ally of ours were very aligned in many, many ways on the human level. Those two countries are very different than South American countries or Spain or Italy or all these other that have all these other ingredients that from my point of view are the change and the radical change that we need in American soccer. We don't need England soccer in the U.S. We have England soccer. In fact, I think we're a derivative of English football because English football is all about that big, fast, strong hardworking. You historically don't think of England like, Ooh, look at, fuck, look at that. They have a Ronaldinho there. Oh shit. Look, they have a Neymar there or a Messi there or guys that bend and break rules. Like the Argentines, those bastards who always are trying to cheat, you know what I'm saying? England doesn't have that stuff. And same with Germany. Germany is not notorious for that sort of spice in the game. Germany is very strict, very rule following culture and the player profiles are just like that, always coloring within the lines. And they've had tremendous success internationally, not to take anything away from that. But I think they have mastered that style, that robotic German 
machine precision style. I don't want to see that in America. I want to see our diversity shine. I want to see our Latino flavor and flair and, and immigrants. There's lots of Argentines here in the States. There's lots of Brazilians here in the States. There's Uruguayans, there's Chileans, there's Spaniards, there's Italians, there's Croatians. There's everything in here. How about we get some of those spices incorporated? I don't want to see English football tea is what I'm telling you, because I think we already have that. And I don't want to see German football tea is what I'm telling you, because we already have that as well. We need something else. And that's why, fine, if Jesse is the guy, listen, I'll do business with him. I'll be very cordial. I'll have great conversations. I'll be very respectful, all these sorts of things. But no, this is not who I want to see leading the group. And so we have Matt Crocker as a sporting director. If Jesse March becomes the coach, how do we then get everyone in the U.S. on the same page as them? What is next? You covered the ground to the top approach to building an identity. What's next in the top-down approach? How do we get youth coaches in the U.S. on the same page as our guys running the show, as the Matt Crocker, as the Jesse Marsh? How do we get the youth coaches to develop players that'll be great in that system or in another system? How do we get okay. everyone on the same page? Yeah, man. There's a few things to unpack there. The troubling thing to me is when we say on the same page, and I understand what you're saying, alignment, and because if everybody's pointing in the same direction, we're stronger that way. I get it. One obstacle there is that what if the page, whoever is defining the page, whoever is writing the page, is the wrong fucking page? That is not the page we should be on, mm -hmm. you see? And so trying to force everybody or in some way through incentives or whatever, trying to corral everybody to be on that page that in quotes is fucking wrong, right? I'm going to resist that like a motherfucker. And I think other people should resist that like crazy as well. So how do we make it the right page? Results talk. Yes. So if you like win a world cup or at least exhibit amazing performances, like Again, Bielsa's Chile, who far exceeded expectations and everybody could watch that team and be proud of the program. There's pride in the program. Then that is a signal that the page from the top is a good one to mimic, is a good one to kind of rally around and align around. Now, how you actually do that, I think you can't force people to do it, but I think if you inspire them, like Chile was inspiring, then that organically does it for you. You see, or how Spain and Barcelona was thrashing everybody that unifies the countries like, oh yeah, that's us. And that's why we too, as a youth coach, as a personal trainer, whatever, I am going to focus and how I can contribute in that identity, in that spirit. But outside of that, I don't know how you do it unless you get a very prestigious manager who has demonstrated such a thing elsewhere to come in and say, okay, guys, you know who I am. You've seen my work. This is what I bring to the table. I'm going to try to make you proud. This is what you're going to see. We might lose some games and get thrashed by the bigger countries, but you know what? We're going at them and it's a double-edged sword, but what I can promise you is incredible bravery and we're going at them. I'm mimicking Bielsa. Okay. Then that could also be a rallying cry. Okay. Let's push in this direction. Outside of that, Taylor, I think 
and we always end the episodes this way, or I want to, and I think it's important, promotion relegation, because instead of a gatekeeper deciding who the leader or leaders are going to be with promotion relegation, organically, the best ideas, the best work wins out over the course of time. So you can identify truly who are the best coaches in the country, truly who are the best executives in the country, truly who are the best players in the country. When you have a system based on merit, when you have a meritocracy, then the cream organically rises to the top. And then U.S. soccer can be like, hey, clearly this coach and this coach are a cut above the rest in MLS or wherever the coaches happen to be. They are our candidates. We're choosing one of those guys because they earned it. They're there for a reason. They earned it on the field and you can see their product on the field day in and day out. Or these executives of these MLS clubs, hey, they drove this thing to what it is now on a merit basis. Yes, on a merit basis. Hey, knock on their doors. Are you interested at all in coming to lead our federation or be executives in our federation? Because you guys have done exceptional work, but we don't have that, Taylor, you see? And that's what we need. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, there's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers, everyone, and keep building.